Welcome to this BJSM podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers, an assistant multimedia editor at the BMJ. And if you're disappointed not to hear Karim's Khan's voice, uh, fear not, as today he's actually our interviewee and we've got him on the other mic. So good morning, Karim. Hi, Harriet. And um, so as well as being our BJSM editor, you're a professor at the Centre for Hip Health and Mobility and the Department of Family Practice at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. And you've written a paper uh, in BJSM on um, mechanotherapy. So, I mean, what is mechanotherapy and uh, the related mechanotransduction that you go on to talk about? Is this something that clinicians are aware of, do you think? Harriet, together with Alex Scott, I've been talking about mechanotherapy and mechanotransduction for a few years now. And there has been a lot of interest in it because it's something that's not taught in the curriculum and yet it underpins rehab for physios and for doctors. So when we're prescribing exercise as treatment, such as after a hamstring strain or in tendinopathy, the actual process that helps tissue repair is mechanotherapy. So if it's okay with you, I'll take you through the different steps and yeah, sure. explain why it's such a fundamental process. Sure, go for it. So I'm not sure why it was never covered in medical curriculum and in physio curriculum, but the basic question is when we prescribe exercise, you know, how does it actually work? And if I ask that question at a conference, as I often do as a you know, engagement activity, before people have heard the talk, they tend to say strengthening, you're trying to strengthen the tissue. And they may say you're trying to improve the blood flow. And basically people have a sense that it is promoting repair in some way, but when pushed, they generally don't know the cellular process. And understanding the cellular process is important because it makes it much more convincing. Let me make the point that with smoking and lung cancer, once people understood that there was a cellular link between the, the carcinogen in the cigarette and lung cancer, then the argument was all over for the cigarette companies. They couldn't say it was just an association. Um, they, the argument was made very convincingly that, that this process occurred. So the analogy with sport is that when we exercise and a patient is given repetitive strengthening exercises, if we can show the cellular pathway of how the tissue repairs, it gives the clinician much more confidence and the patient much more confidence that we know what we're doing. We're not just hoping that the, that the injury get better. Oh, okay. So, so uh, clinicians need to have a, a better grasp on, on what's actually going on at the cellular level then, you think? Yeah, I think it does make us more confident because some of these conditions take 12, 16 weeks to get better. For example, a tendinopathy mm. can take... Uh, you know, 12 weeks uh, easily. And so if things aren't going well at six weeks, if there isn't dramatic clinical improvement yet, having confidence that we understand the scientific basis for the exercise program, it can help the clinician push on, help the patient be confident rather than bailing out to some, what I'd call voodoo therapy, which we right. can <laughs> touch on um, at the end if we if we get time. Sure, okay. So, so then what are the, the steps? That, uh, that make this up. Yeah, and it sounds complicated on the podcast or radio show, but the readers have got the benefit of the BJSM paper that they can see, and we've got lovely illustrations from BJSM's artist, Vicky Earle, who does the covers as well. And so that'll help the reader um, understand what's going on. So really, there are these four key steps, and that's relying on the cellular anatomy, it's relying on this concept of mechanocoupling where a mechanical load is turned into a biochemical signal. 
-hmm. which is how all body tissues work. Then there's gene upregulation, which causes the protein synthesis, and that's what we want. We want structural repair. And then there's also fantastic communication between the cells that make up the structure, which is beautiful, so that if you're rehabilitating an area and you're loading tissues slightly away from where you're trying to load, then there can be cell communication to help all of it repair. So if I go through those four steps briefly, and again, acknowledging that uh, listeners will be having the, the journal article um, handy, and just you know briefly make the point that as far as point number one, cellular anatomy goes, cells are beautifully designed to respond to loading. They're, it's obviously part of evolution. And unfortunately, in medical course, we were trained that cells were designed to be receptor sites for drugs. And there was no mention of their adaptation for physical stimulus um, reception. But really, they have... Uh, an external border, the cell membrane, which is geared to send signals into the cell because of loading. They have what's called a cytoskeleton, um, a small structure that helps keep them in shape. And then there are these switches called integrins, which you can think of as being like a light switch in a way that they flick on and off, or in this case, they allow a signal to go from the outside of the cell to the inside. And what's coming from the outside of the cell is a physical stimulus saying, this cell is going to be loaded like this. Mm. And the, the integrin switch then says, okay, I'm going to make some new tendon if we stick with tendon as an example to start off with okay. and, and repair and adapt myself so I can handle this load. So that's the beauty of the cellular anatomy. Okay. So, so these steps, the mechanocoupling, the cell-to-cell communication and, and the cell response – do they, which tissues do they apply to? Is this fairly general across the board or do you have to be more specific? They apply across the board, which is the beauty of it. So I'll go through the mechanocoupling and the gene upregulation and the communication in detail, a bit more detail as well. Okay. But that is the beauty of it, that if we're talking about a tendon repair, if we're talking about loading um, bone after a stress fracture and person returning to sport gradually, if we're talking about a hamstring strain or any sort of muscle strain, when the physiotherapist, for example, is giving the rehabilitation program, they're actually sending these signals into the tissue and that's promoting tissue repair. Great. Okay. So this is a really good basis that clinicians can learn and then apply to everything. Indeed. So one of the um, beautiful parts is mechanocoupling and that's shown as figure one um, in the paper. And so what you see there in, is... Uh, collagen which has its characteristic golden reflectivity beautifully drawn and then in green in figure one you see the cell cytoplasm and it highlights the importance of the cell which when you're just looking under a microscope you can't see the cytoplasm you just see the staining of the nucleus and you tend to under appreciate how much um, cell structures there are mm. and how the cytoplasms connect with each other and that's, that's highlighted a bit more in figure two in the paper as well but if we stick with figure one what it illustrates is that as the person does an exercise in the middle panel so they're, they're doing a heel drop for example those black arrows show that there's a movement down of part of the tendon in this case okay and the straight lines that sort of run across the figure are just markers put in to show that they move. So if you look from the left to the right of the panels, you see that the the, the tendon collagen slides down. And so you get an impression that the cell nucleus, the cigar sort of shaped 
submarine thing in the middle um, mm-hmm. is, is physically in, in touched upon. So it's a physical pressure on the nucleus and that'll send a message which we'll get to. And then in the third panel, you see that um, the, the side of the plasma and the nucleus gets crushed a bit as well. So there's what we call a shearing force and there can also be a compression force. And it's really obvious to anyone who sees these slides and has listened to this talk at a conference that physical loading does influence the um, cell in this way. And that's the holy grail that drug companies are looking for. They're trying to influence the cell with drugs. But here we see a physical stimulus affecting the cell. Right, okay. And then how does that lead on to the the, the gene upregulation? Okay, so then we have to look inside the cell and uh, look at the cell boundary. And this is shown in figure three. And so in the first panel for those who can aren't driving, I don't recommend people listening to this podcast while they're driving. Um, you see that in panel A, there's a bunch of cells communicating with each other and you see the green cells and uh, the nuclei. And then what we do is we explode that down to look at one particular cell. And if you compare the two, you can see um, the brown outline for the um, cell membrane. You see the light green cytoplasm you see the nucleus and then the dense DNA centrally. And listeners who don't have the paper in front of them understand cell structures so they can follow that. So then the key part is that there are integrins, which are these switches which promote signaling from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. And they're amazing structures really. And they're sim- simplified. They're drawn in a simplified way in the image obviously. Mm. And they're, they have two two ways of getting a message into the cell. There's a direct pathway, which means that the um, integrin connects with this cyto, this cytoskeleton that I mentioned earlier, like a mini skeleton inside the cell. Okay. There's a direct connection between integrin, the mini skeleton, and then the nucleus. And so that's one way of getting a message to the nucleus to say, you need to make this um, make some new tendon material. And there's also an indirect pathway where the integrins stimulate proteins and then they're switched on effectively and then they float into the nucleus and send a signal and so the fact there are two pathways is illustrative of what an important process this is because the body has redundancy on really critical pathways and so this tells Mm. us that the body is you know used to it being adapted to load and that this is an important pathway for repair great sounds good and the um the the first image in that in that figure you've, where you've got all the the, the cell the, you know the cells communicating with each other. Do you want to talk us through that process a bit more? Yeah, yeah. So that's panel A in figure three, and what that is is the purpose of that picture is to emphasise to folks that there's a lot more cell action than just collagen action in tendons or just muscle fibre in in muscles, and this here harks back to the fact that when those of us that were awake, well, I shouldn't say those of us that were awake because I slept through histopathology in medical school for sure. I just didn't understand the excitement of it or the purpose. Mm. But anyway, having come back to this as a clinician, I didn't realize that the cells were so dominant in terms of their structure because the staining methods only showed the nucleus. So if you look in figure A and you just see the nucleus, the round, sort of slightly cigar-shaped brown thing, if we're allowed to use the word cigar-shaped in a BMJ product. Um, You know, there's not many of them, but when you see the green cytoplasm reaching out from every cell, you see this tremendous network of uh, cells. And so then you realize, okay, these structures like tendons, like in muscle, 
and similarly in bone, the cells have a lot of communication and they make up an important part of the structure. And in this particular panel, we've washed away the collagen and, and left the, cyto, um, the cytoplasm evidence. So the point of that figure is to say, look, there's a lot of cells, they communicate with each other, they cover a lot of territory. So of course, they can influence the structure tremendously. And what happens from there? important thing is that once the nucleus has started making protein and repair tissue which then flows out of the cell and can help heal the tendon important point is to realize that uh, the cells can communicate with each other and send messages over distances and that's actually shown in figure two in the paper so we see a lot of uh, cells in figure two and then there are a lot of um, orange dots in the paper which are the ip3 um, chemicals and what they're showing is that there's communication through small gap junctions between the cells and so these gap junctions are like trapdoors and so the cells are in communication with each other and so they can really direct the signal across to adjacent cells to also upregulate protein, make new tissue and adapt the structure. So the clinical relevance of this is, is if physiotherapists is doing exercise within a certain range of motion, they don't have to be too worried that they're getting the exact site. They'll, they'll be trying to replicate the range of motion where the tissue is loaded and where the injury is being felt. But if they don't get it quite right, the clinician doesn't have to um, direct the exercise perfectly. There is some redundancy and, and some communication um, between the cells. So clearly, the more the clinician can target the rehab to the precise area of tissue damage, um, that's that's great, but the tissue can send signals from one cell to another and uh, basically adapt the local tissue appropriately and, and respond to loading. So the important message for the clinician is as you're loading the tissue, the body has got sophisticated systems to adapt appropriately. Sure. So, so that's what's going on um, through the physiological process and mechanotransduction. Um, but how does this actually relate into into practice? What what are the messages that you wanted to to get across for this for for doctors and physios who are treating patients with mechanotherapy, where once you know their patients would just be good, told to go and sit on the sofa for a few months? One important message is that that pain is not a contraindication to mechanotherapy. Pain can be part of, of healing, and. If I can just share a short illustration that taught us all a great deal about pain not uh, blocking healing, it was that Hawken Alfredson, which sounds crazy, was trying to rupture his Achilles tendon because he thought that that's what he needed to do to get over a chronic case of tendinopathy. He thought if he ruptured his tendon, he could have it operated and um, it would repair. So listeners can take that up with Hawken as, as a good form of medical care or not. But what it taught us, was that his pain got worse and worse and he kept thinking it was going to rupture but then his tendon healed and his tendon didn't rupture and uh, he realized that the heel drop program was an important therapy for Achilles tendinopathy and so the take-home message there was that pain can be okay but we don't want it going through the roof and so there can be a helpful traffic light system almost where you have zero pain as a number zero and agony as a 10 and if a young clinician thinks of five as being sort of a threshold, so zero to five is the green, then keep the pain in that green section of the traffic of, of the 
um, green and red panel. And uh, don't let the pain get worse day to day. So if a patient's getting a two out of 10 pain and doing exercises every day, mechanotherapy every day, then if they get a three out of 10 and then a four out of 10, that's not heading the right way. So then the clinician should insert a day of rest or two days of rest and then come back with mechanotherapy consistently. So there should be consistent stimulus to load as we've discussed, but it's, it's okay to give the tissue a chance to really respond and make the new protein by giving a day or two off in between. So it sounds as though clinicians have to be quite confident in those consultations. I mean, because you're telling patients to do something that's been quite counter to what we traditionally thought was the right thing to do. So you do have to get up and you do have to do stuff and it might hurt. Do you have any tips for clinicians in explaining these things to patients? And what are the the kind of, are there any dangers that they should be aware of with, you know, what patients can go off and do if they don't take their advice? I think it's really important for the sports physician or the family doctor giving advice before a patient goes to physiotherapy um, to give the right timelines. So when I saw a patient with chronic tendinopathy, maybe they'd had it for six months or a year, I'd always say that this will take you know, 12 weeks or more to really get better. And uh, uh, that gives the physiotherapist a chance to show that their program is working. And I draw the analogy with ACL reconstruction where you don't expect someone to recover from ACL surgery in two weeks or four weeks. It would be considered a terrible operation if that was the timeline. Mm. And yet people were bailing out of tendinopathy treatment in four weeks and six weeks when the timelines are really more similar to an ACL reconstruction in, in the chronic cases. So um, I'd support that by telling the patient I didn't want to review them um, till eight weeks or, or 10 weeks because I knew they wouldn't be better by then. Okay. And I'd also warn the patient that there might be more pain in the first few weeks as we just discussed as they're getting, you know, as they're loading the tissue. So giving patient realistic goals is important. And then I think having a strong opinion about something like PRP um, which is something a patient might think is going to be a magic fix. So plasma-rich protein, BMJ's had a few articles about this, including the consensus document. But you know, I have to say that the evidence is looking very damning for this condition. And the best randomised trial to date, published in JAMA from Robert Jan de Vos from Netherlands and his group, showed absolutely no benefit um, for PRP. And a series of high-quality um, trials and systematic reviews have come down against PRP being useful. And the only exception is one trial where they injected PRP and uh, compared it with cortisone and it was PRP was better than cortisone in tennis elbow. But we know that cortisone's a tendon poison. So really all that PRP did was it wasn't as bad as a tendon poison. And there's a podcast with Bill Vincenzino on that and Jill Cook making the point that cortisone's a tendon poison. So that paper certainly needs to be thrown out of court if anyone was bringing it in as an argument for PRP. And recently, there's been a paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine that had a 48% dropout after the primary outcome wasn't met. So just to back it up, the paper was meant to be a 12-week trial of PRP. At 12 weeks, the PRP in tennis elbow didn't work. And then they extended the trial and uh, for another 12 weeks. And at that stage, more than half the patients had dropped out. And then 
they argued that there was a small benefit for PRP in tennis elbow. Now, unfortunately, the title of the paper is that PRP is effective in tennis elbow. And, uh, you know, this paper really needs a thorough sort of commentary with it by an epidemiologist highlighting that one cannot take a paper with 48% dropout uh, mm. seriously and that the primary outcome of the study that was reported in the registry where you report primary outcomes and power calculations for randomised trials was at 12 weeks and at that stage PRP didn't work. So right now I'm very confident to say to our listeners that there isn't evidence that PRP is effective and you know, patients can try things obviously and in some patients things can work but the DeVos paper is the classic paper and there was absolutely no benefit in those patients at 12 weeks or at a year um, or at two years on any outcome with PRP in tendinopathy. Great sounds good well for something that's so widely applicable and uh, you know at such a basic level I think you've done a really good job of making it accessible and um, and straightforward with the paper and those those illustrations are really helpful so listeners do go and have a look at that and the papers, uh, Mechanotherapy, How Physical Therapist's Prescription of Exercise Promotes Tissue Repair. So thanks very much, for Karim. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Any other resources that listeners interested in this should go and have a look at? Yeah, thanks, Harriet. Uh, the quick one that I tell students uh, is to Google Mechanotherapy and Sport. <laughs> and, uh, that'll bring this paper up on the top of Google. Brilliant. But uh, really, it is easy to find and uh, it's... Um, it's a great pleasure to be on the BJSM podcast great as always thanks very much Karim